0: Where do you see yourself in five years? I always thought that was not a fair question in a job interview because a lot of times in a job interview, you don't see yourself at that job in five years. But you probably better not say that most of the time. Well, I don't see myself here. That's for certain. You're not going to get the job. What's your dream job? Of course, it's this job I'm interviewing for. This is the job I've always wanted. I don't know what else you say. Why are you leaving your current job? Well, you're probably not going to say they fired me. You're probably not going to say I couldn't get along with anyone. You're probably going to say, well, I just, you know, it was, it was time for a transition, and God was doing some things in my life. Translation, they fired me, and I need a new job. How do you deal with stress? I do not suggest that you say I binge Netflix and eat ice cream when I feel stressed. Come up with something better than that. So a lot of these questions... You may not know exactly how to answer. Here's an interesting job interview question. How has your past work experience prepared you for this job? Depending on the position you're interviewing for, somebody may want to know that. What have you experienced in life as an employee, as a person, as a human being that has prepared you to do this job? I think that's a tricky question because a lot of times in life, this has been my experience, A lot of times in life you don't really know the things that you've gone through in the past that actually prepared you for something in the present or maybe even in the future. A lot of times you can see those things in hindsight. You can look backwards and you can say, you know, I found myself in this situation and it was kind of like that and I, I knew how to handle it or maybe I knew how to not handle it based on what I had gone through previously. So it's an interesting question. It can be a a challenging question to answer. Let's just think about that question as Christian people. We believe a a core tenet of the Christian worldview is that there is a God, that he is all-powerful, that he is in complete control of every detail of, of existence in our lives, that nothing escapes his sovereignty. And if you believe that, then you have to look back on the previous experiences you've had in life and say, those weren't for nothing. Those weren't just coincidental or incidental. Those weren't meaningless. God had some purpose, whether I saw it in the moment or I didn't. God had some purpose in all of the things that he led me through in my life. God is always at work in our lives, even when we don't think he is. Maybe we should say God is always at work in our lives, especially when we don't think that he is. And that's sort of the, I didn't put a big idea on your notes, I'm not doing that on Wednesday nights, but if that was sort of the big idea that we're driving at tonight in David's life, that's what it is. We're going to look at the time in David's life when he was a shepherd. There's not a lot of details to look at really, you kind of have to pull them here and there. But when you think about the time that David spent out in the field with the sheep, the point I want to drive home to you is that God used that time. It wasn't time in the limelight. It wasn't time with an impressive title. It wasn't a time in his life where he had a long, detailed resume. But God was working in his life even in those seasons. And I hope for you, and I hope for me, there's a little bit of encouragement in that as we go through all the things that God was doing in David's life when it looked like he wasn't doing much of anything, I hope that in your life you can step back and say, you know what, maybe I feel like I'm too young to be of much use to God. Maybe I feel like I'm too old to be of much use to God. Maybe I think I have so much free time on my hands that I just don't know what to do with myself. Or maybe I don't have a spare minute to catch my breath. Whatever your circumstances and whatever your frustration might be at the stage of life you're in now, my hope is that you come away saying, God is at work in my life. I may not see it now. I may not even realize it tomorrow or next week or next year, but he's at work in my life and I can rest in that. So we're just going to flip around. I'm going to throw some ideas at you and we'll see where we land here. First idea is this, God used David's time as a shepherd to teach him humility. He used his time as a shepherd to teach him humility. Last week we looked at 1st Samuel 16. Samuel rolls into Bethlehem. You remember we talked about this, he did not show up that is Samuel. He did not show up and say, "I'm here to anoint a king." He was essentially an outlaw already because he was Saul's enemy. And when God said, go to Bethlehem and anoint a king, he said, I don't know how that's going to play out. And God said, okay, go to Bethlehem. Just tell him you're there to offer a sacrifice. That's your cover. So he goes in, and he's going to offer this sacrifice. And at some point, it becomes apparent, at least to Jesse. We're not exactly sure to how many other people, but at least to Jesse, he's up to more than just a sacrifice. He's here to anoint a king. And we talked about Samuel. He's looking for the tallest, the oldest, the strongest, the best, and the brightest. And we sort of whittle our way down all the way through David's sons. And there's David, not even in the lineup. And Samuel gets to the end, and he says, is this it and jesse kind of has to think for a second like uh one two three four five there is the little guy he's not here we didn't even think to bring him in god's using even that moment when david is taking care of the sheep and doesn't even get brought in for the lineup to work humility into his life look at chapter 17 Israel, we're going to come to this passage in a few weeks. Israel's facing off against the Philistines. Jesse has sent his sons to fight. Again, David didn't get sent. He's back with the sheep. And all little David gets to do is deliver lunch. Like he's the the door dash guy or the meal delivery guy. And he gets to go out there. And just look how his brothers treat him when he goes out there. 1 Samuel 17 verse 28. Eliab, his eldest brother... Heard when he, that's David, spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Siblings can get angry with each other, can't they? It doesn't take much. And here's big brother looking at baby brother, thinking you're sticking your nose where you don't need to stick it, Bubba. So he says, why have you come down? Why, why are you here, David? With whom... Have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Not only does he take a jab at him for being a shepherd, but he says, you're not even that important as far as shepherds go. You just have a few sheep. And we don't know how many sheep he had, but this is big brother sort of poking baby brother. You're not that big a deal, David. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned from him toward another, and he spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. This is working humility in David's life. He's there. He wants to be involved. He wants to be a part. He wants to know the battle plan. He wants to know what's going on. And everybody just sort of looks at him and says, you're a nobody. You're not worthy of the information. You're just here to stick your nose where it doesn't belong. How did God use that in his life? I think he used it in a couple of ways. I think for one thing, if you're a king, you've got to have pretty thick skin. right? You ever heard the phrase, don't punch down? right? If you're a king, you can't worry about every little person who gets upset with you about something. You can't be punching down at everybody. You've got to let some of that stuff bounce off of you. Maybe God's working some of that into David's life as he's... He's enduring these insults. I also think a king needs to know how to serve. A king needs to, do, uh, needs to know how to do things that everyone else doesn't really see as all that important. Jesus talked to his disciples about that. You want to be the greatest? You want to be the most important? You want to be the guy who's in charge? You want to sit at the head of the table? Why don't you go wash some feet? Do the servant's job if you want to be the leader. That's how you lead in the kingdom, and God is teaching David that. Everyone else is out doing, quote-unquote, important things. David is doing unimportant things, watching sheep. I hope you see the same pattern actually played out in Jesus' life. We're going to come back at the end and talk about Jesus. But you see the exact same thing play out in Jesus' life. He shows up. He's not the youngest, but he shows up at times, and his brothers mock him, and they tease him, and they make fun of him. And they, they poke at him. Jesus spent more years as a carpenter than a preacher. More years doing manual labor than he did preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was humble enough to lead through service, washing the disciples' feet. We mentioned that already. God is at work in David's life. One of the things he's teaching him is humility. Secondly, God used his time as a shepherd to teach him bravery or Courage. Look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Why are you so scared of Goliath? Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Meaning, you don't have the experience. You don't meet the job requirements or the job qualifications. Verse 34, David said to Saul, Well, your servant used to keep sheep. He used to be a shepherd, like yesterday. He used to keep sheep for his father. You can hear Eliab in the background saying, Yeah, a few, not many used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of the mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw... Of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine? And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Everyone else kind of chuckled at it. We kind of chuckle at it. We kind of look at it and say, Man, it's one thing to go out and fight a, a cougar one on one, and you got a staff, and it's another thing to go fight Goliath. But in David's mind, there really wasn't that big of a leap. He said, I've done this, I can do that. And I understand there's faith here. David says, the Lord delivered me here and the Lord will deliver me here. There's certainly faith, but there's also courage and there's bravery. And everyone else is too scared to go out. And this is one of those places where we come alongside David and we pat him on the back and we, we applaud him and we say, that was courageous, incredibly brave. Why does that matter? It matters because if you're a king, you've got to have courage. Kings need to be brave. Leaders have to have courage. And most of us don't just come by it naturally. Most of us learn it through small experiences and it sort of builds up. There will come a moment in your life. It may be one that a lot of people see, it may be one that only you know about. But there will come a moment in your life where you need courage. You need bravery. Not cocky, arrogant, boastful, braggadocious courage but faith-fueled courage. You're going to need it. And that moment is not going to come with like a warning sign five minutes ahead of time saying, Warning, you have five minutes to build some courage up here where you can sort of pep talk yourself up to it. Usually, it's just upon you and all of a sudden you need it. I need some courage right now. How many of you have ever been whitewater rafting? You ever done this? I've been whitewater rafting a couple of times. When I've done it, we've always gone up to, uh, up to Colorado. And, and parts uh, where we've gone, there's some big rapids, uh, class five rapids, rapids that really can be, depending on the water level and the, the season, can be a little bit dangerous. And every time I've gone whitewater rafting, one of the things the guide does early in the ride, right? When they put you in the river, you're not right at the rapid. They put you in in the calm, and you get used to the boat and the oar and how we're going to count and row as a team. And at some point, the guide has said, okay, now jump in. Get in. And you sort of look at him and say, well, I know how to swim. And he says, no, 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 but you don't know how to swim in this water where it's moving fast and it's really, really cold. So get in. Because if you fall in in the rapid, I don't want you to freak out. I don't want that to be the first time you hit the water and you don't know what to do and you just lock up and you're terrified. So you're going to get in now and you're going to swim through some of this light stuff. And then later, if you happen to capsize and go in on the big rapid, you're ready. That's kind of what God is doing with David. He's saying, look, I'm not going to throw you right to the Philistine in the sixth grade. I'm going to send you out with the sheep. And you're going to be frustrated by that because what you want to do is be out there with your brothers. But you're going to go with the sheep first. You're going to stay with the sheep. You're going to learn responsibility and you're going to learn to be faithful and you're going to learn all these things. And when you're ready, I'm going to send a bear. You're going to have to fight that bear. And I'm going to send a lion and you're going to have to fight that lion. And those things, those experiences in life are going to prepare you for what's coming later here's my point when David was fighting the bear and when David was fighting the lion he didn't see it as preparation he just saw it as life this is just life it's just happening he didn't know it was getting him ready for something else down the road in your life today tomorrow next week something's going to happen and you're not going to immediately just think oh I know what God's up to he's getting me ready for something really scary You're just going to deal with it. And you're going to trust God is at work in my life even when I don't quite understand what he's doing or even when I don't feel like he's around. He's teaching him humility. He's teaching him bravery. Number three, God's using David's time as a shepherd to mold his heart. To mold his heart. Flip over to the book of Psalms and I'll try to describe what what I mean here. I told you Sunday that... um, We've had a couple of funerals recently. We've had a a number of funerals this year, more than normal for for our church, at least since I've been here. Both of the funerals we had this last week were for ladies. Uh, But one of the things I've noticed and I thought about, uh, as I thought about this aspect of David's life. Um, I thought about funerals I've done for older men. And I'm not going to define older men uh, and put an age bracket on that. I'm just going to say older men. Um, one of the things that I've heard from a lot of families, not all, but a lot of families when an older gentleman in the family has passed away, you sit down with the family and you say, tell me about your dad, tell me about your granddad. A lot of them say something like, you know, dad or papa or grandpa. He didn't really tell you he loved you a lot. Like he wasn't a man of many words, but I knew he loved me. I knew he loved me. He showed me with his actions and he showed me with his presence and he showed me with his provision in my life. I I know that he cared for me, but he just, he didn't talk about those things a lot. That's a pretty common thing that I hear from families. Piggyback with that, a lot of families will add this caveat. However, when he had grandkids, he kind of started to change. He kind of gave more hugs, and he kind of loosened up a little bit, and he'd get down on the floor and play with them, and he'd tell you he loved you more, and it wasn't a big mushy-gushy thing, but what they're saying is, you know, dad, grandpa, whoever, it didn't come easy for him, and God used a grandbaby, maybe, to sort of soften him up a little bit, and God can do that in our lives. He can use people, and he can use situations, and he can use circumstances to mold us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. And I think God did that with David. And I'm just kind of pulling that out of a couple of psalms that are very well known to us, that we read them all the time. And they sort of give you a glimpse into David's heart, to things that he was thinking about, to things that were important to him. And I think both of these psalms can be connected without too much of a stretch of the imagination to David being a shepherd, especially Psalm 23, which begins, The Lord is my shepherd. Well, where in the world would David learn what it was like to be a shepherd? Well, I used to keep Dad's sheep, all few of them. I kept them, and I know what it's like to keep sheep. It's hard work because sheep are stupid. And you gotta really stay on top of them, and you gotta take care of them, and you gotta provide for them, and you gotta lead them to the, the still water because the rushing water, their, their wool will get wet, and they'll get heavy, and they'll fall in, and they can't swim, and they'll drown. They'll be too heavy, they can't make it. And you gotta lead them to the, the good grass, they'll, they'll only eat certain kinds of grass, and you gotta protect them. From the the enemy, you need a a rod and you need a staff. And David's learning all of these things as a shepherd. And then at some point in his life, the light bulb goes off. And he goes, you know, the the things I do for these dumb sheep is kind of like God taking care of dumb me. It's the same thing. And he sits down at some point in his life and he writes Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And in David's mind, you understand this. When David wrote this psalm, He was not thinking. Pastor Landon in 2019 is going to need something to read at the funeral. So let's let's put something in the Bible that they can use. Three thousand years in the future. Three thousand years in the future. He's just writing about life, and it's what he knows. He doesn't say the Lord's like an auto mechanic. He doesn't say the Lord's like a great football coach. This is what he knows. And God's using it. And he says, you know, the Lord, he's like a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm the shepherd of these sheep and God is my shepherd. And here we are thousands of years later reading the same thing. David, for all he knows, is just writing down his thoughts. Writing something that can help other people understand what God is like. Was God at work in his life? I'd say he was. We're still reading it. Psalm 119. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You know, when David wrote that, he was not thinking about people in Odessa, Texas, in 2019 who need a good Bible verse to tag on their picture of the sunset in West Texas. He's not thinking about that. He's just out in the field, in the dark in the middle of the night, nothing else to do, feels like he's wasting his life sitting out there with these sheep. Wants to be in on the action with the big boys and God's got him right out here in the field with the sheep and he's looking up and he's got nothing else to do so he starts thinking about the stars. and the sky and the moon and the wonder of it all, and the glory of it all. And he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, every single day, it pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Beautiful writing. All sort of thoughts that would be running through David's mind as he's out in the field, with the sheep, so he's he's molding David's heart into the kind of man he wants him to be. Next, God used David's time as a shepherd to prepare, clear. He's preparing him to be. Sort of been hinting around this all night long, but let's just make it clear. He's preparing him to be a leader. And I want you to flip over to the next book in the Bible, Second Samuel, and I just want you to read a few a few things about David the king. Second Samuel, verse. Uh, excuse me. Second Samuel, chapter five, verse one. Says, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and they said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in, Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. He was 30 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Right here at the very beginning of David becoming the king. Right, the very entry point to the final big task that God had been preparing him for, the people say what? You're going to be the shepherd. You're the prince. Right? And when David heard that, just imagine if you're David, all the things that start flooding through your mind when these people come and they say, you're going to be the shepherd over us. I'm going to have to provide for you. I'm going to have to keep you safe. I'm going to have to lead you. I'm going to have to watch over you and care for you. All of the things he knows about being a shepherd flooding into his mind as they make him the king. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. This is Nathan bringing the word of the Lord to David. And there's a reminder in here that David was a shepherd says, the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Right? He's talking about all the people who have been leaders, all the shepherds. And look what he says in verse 8. Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. That was your preparation. You're the shepherd, and then I made you the prince. Right? All these ideas of David the shepherd built into his time as a leader. Now let's talk about one not so positive. Look at 2 Samuel 24. This is when David takes a census of the people. He should not have done that. God was angry with him. God said, David, the consequence here is that you get to pick the punishment. Did your parents ever do that to you when you are growing up? I'm going to give you three choices, and you've got to pick one. And that's what God says to David. I'm going to give you some choices here. You've got to pick one of these three. And David chooses the pestilence. And look what we read in 24 verse 15. The Lord sent pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. David's the shepherd of those people. And they died because of his sin. When the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of of the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Notice he doesn't call himself their shepherd in that passage. There's an acknowledgement of I've failed these people. They're just sheep. And I'm their shepherd and I've not lived up to that. What have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. At the beginning of David becoming king, at the end of David reigning as king, there's this idea of shepherding built in to the role of leadership. One last thought here on your notes. God used David's time as shepherd to prepare his people for the Messiah. He's preparing them for the Messiah. When you read through the Old Testament, God gives his people a lot of hints about who the Messiah would be, what the Messiah would be like, and he uses things that are very familiar to them. He doesn't speak in sort of terms and words that, they don't have a reference point for, but it's, it's very accommodating to the people. So for Adam and Eve, when God is promising Adam and Eve that he's going to send someone, what does he say? He says, I'm going to send someone who will crush the serpent. They knew exactly what God was saying. We have an enemy and he's part of how all this got ruined in the first place and you're going to send someone to kill him. That's great news. Later, in the Old Testament, this idea of a shepherd is tied to the Messiah. Look at the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34. We'll just look at a few examples of this. Ezekiel 34, verse 22, God says, I will rescue my flock, they will no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up for them one shepherd. My servant David, and he'll feed them, and he'll feed them, and he'll be their shepherd. One shepherd, and he's going to be like David. Look at chapter 37, verse 24. It says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. And they'll walk in my rules. They'll be careful to obey my statutes. They'll dwell in the land that I gave my servant, Jacob, where your fathers lived. And the children and the children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. He's going to be their shepherd. They'll have one Shepherd, this son of David. All these verses that Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah tie together, they all come to fulfillment in John 10 when Jesus sits down with his disciples and he says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one Ezekiel promised. I'm the one that, that David pointed you, for, pointed you, you forward to, to look for and to anticipate. You, you had this shepherd king. And the prophet said, God is going to send a shepherd king to rule over you. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, that's me. I'm the good shepherd. How many of you remember the movie Karate Kid? Remember Karate Kid? How many of you have seen the new Karate Kid? There's two versions. You like the old one better? Vote. like the new one better? Anybody bold enough? No one. Not a single person. Wow. In the first one, it's Mr. Miyagi and Daniel, and uh, I'm not going to rehash the the entire plot, but Miyagi's teaching Daniel, right? He's the teacher, Daniel's the student, and all he has Daniel doing is waxing cars, and sanding floors, and painting fences, and all of this nonsense. And if you've seen the new one, it's Mr. Han and Dre. And all that Dre gets to do in his karate training, if you've seen the new one, is hang your jacket up, put your jacket on, take your jacket off, hang your jacket up, over and over again. He just takes it off, on and off and on and off. And uh, in both of the movies, it's, it's the same idea. The student is just right at the breaking point of quitting. Like, just, this is ridiculous, I'm wasting my time, you're a crazy old man, and you have just got free labor off of me. Or you've just laughed at me hanging this jacket up for months. And then they realize the light bulb goes off. I was learning karate. I didn't realize it. I thought I was just doing something menial, something routine, something insignificant. But I was actually learning. Now, I've never taken karate. I don't think that's how you actually learn karate. If you're thinking about taking karate lessons, I don't think that's how you actually do it. But you understand the point in the movie. You're doing all of these things that seem so boring. They seem so unimportant. They seem so irrelevant. They just seem like a waste. Just seems like a waste. Until you realize it wasn't. There was actually intention there, there was thought there, there was design there, there was a plan there. That's exactly what you see in David's life during this season where he's a shepherd. David did not want to be a shepherd, he wanted to be with the big boys. He wanted to be on the front lines of the battle. He did not want to get left out of the family parties when kings were being anointed. But they just forgot him out there. And he hated it. He didn't like it. You can see his eagerness every time he shows up. He just wants to be involved. And then at some point, he looks back and he realizes it wasn't irrelevant, it wasn't meaningless, it wasn't wasted. God didn't just have me in a holding pattern, flying circles in the air until he was ready for me. God was actually working in my life when I didn't even see it. And he was preparing me for what he had in store. I like the way John Piper says it. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three. Maybe. Not only may you see a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, but the part you do see may make no sense at all. That can be you in your job. That can be you in your family situation. That can be you in your uh, work or retirement situation. That can be you in any number of circumstances. That can be you in church. I mean, That can be you on multiple, multiple levels where you just say, God, what are we doing here? I don't understand. I want to do something big for you. Or I, this is not what I had in, in mind when I became a Christian, or this is what I, not what I thought I was signing up for when I got married or I had kids. God, I don't see what you're doing. And there's a reminder that we need to hear. You may not see it. If you see it, you may not understand it. But it doesn't mean that God's not at work in your life. And you may be aware of the tiniest fraction of what's going on, and God may be doing 10,000 different things in your life at any one moment. I just gave you a few examples here. We'll end with these, and we're not going to look them up. End of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, the longest story of any one character in Genesis. This is a man who's sold into slavery, accused of sexual assault, left to rot in a prison. And you talk about a holding pattern... That's a guy in a holding pattern. God, what are you doing? Well, he's doing something. He's putting you right where he wants you to be, right when he needs you to be there, so that you can save your family and lead a nation. How about the book of Ruth? How do you think Ruth, uh, excuse me, Naomi felt when she loses a husband and she loses her son and she's got to leave home and then she's got to come back empty-handed? God, what are you doing? in my life. What in the world is happening? How is this part of the plan? Well, it's part of the plan. You're going to gain a daughter, then a son-in-law, then a grandson, and eventually the Messiah. I'm doing something. You may not see it, but I'm at work. How about Esther? I mean, we could talk about the whole book of Esther. How about just chapter 6? There's a king, and he can't sleep, and he's bored out of his mind, and there's no Netflix to turn on, so he says, bring me a book. I don't care what book, any book. And he reads the book, and they open to the exact right page, and events begin to unfold. An enemy is exposed. A people is saved. The family of the Messiah lives. God's at work. In a sleepless night, God's at work. How about Luke 1? Mary A sexually pure woman excited to be married finds herself in, all of a sudden, a situation that really doesn't look very good, and people are talking, and people are whispering, and people have theories, and rumors begin to spread, but there's a blessing coming through that situation. God, why would you put me in this situation? Why would you choose to do it this way? Why would you put me through this? He's working. John 11, Mary and Martha, they lose their brother. He dies. They have the funeral. They bury him. God's at work. He's going to reveal his glory through this situation. Philippians 1, Paul's in prison. He's not able to travel. He's not able to plant churches. He's not able to do all the other things that he feels called to do, that he loves to do, that he's passionate about doing. And he writes to his friends in Philippi, and he says, it's okay. God's at work. Because I got locked up, everyone else is talking about Jesus more. That's a great thing. And there's some guys here in the prison who needed to hear about Jesus, and I don't think they would have heard about him otherwise. God's got me exactly where he wants me. He's at work. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has a thorn in the flesh. He, He doesn't like the thorn, whatever it is a sickness, a person, a a disease, a sin, a struggle. He begs God to take it away. God, why will you not change this circumstance in this situation? Why will you not get rid of this? Why will you not work in my life? God, please do something. And God says, I'm not going to take it away. And the end result is that Paul is made humble. That's a good thing. He's dependent on the Lord. That's a good thing. And God's power and glory shines through Paul's weakness. You see it in David's life, this season where it looks like God wasn't up to much. He was actually up to a lot. And you see it in the son of David's life. And the greatest example in all the scriptures, when the son of David is hung on a Roman cross and he's left there, naked, beaten, bloody, to die. And they take him down and they put him in a grave and they seal it up. And from an outsider's perspective, you look at that and you say, well, God's not at work here. Nothing good going on here. This is not the way that good things come about. This is not the way that God saves his people. Where is God in this situation? He's at work, doing the greatest work, the work of salvation, in Jesus dying and then being raised from the dead. I think when you look at this episode of David's life, it ought to provide a little bit of encouragement to you. And maybe it's not encouragement you, you need today. Maybe it's encouragement you're going to need next week or next month or next year. Or maybe it's the encouragement you need tonight where you've come in and you've said, God, I don't know why you've got me where you've got me. I don't understand it. It's not where I would choose to be. I sure feel like you could use me in other places or other ways, in much greater ways. And maybe you just need to be reminded, I may not see all the ways that God is at work in my life right now. And the ones that I do see, I may not even be able to make sense of. I may not see how God is going to use this situation for my good or for the good of my kids or my grandkids or a hundred years down the road, their grandkids. But He's at work and we can rest in that. And we can trust him for that.